All right. Well, I am glad you were all here today because it would be a lonely place if you weren't. I would be speaking to empty chairs, right? Nothing like stating the obvious. Right, right up front, I want to mention that, that the foundational work for this series that we're going to be doing, it's, it's four weeks. It's based on a sermon series that comes from a Bible Basics Explained series. It's from a ministry called Through the Word. And if you have the YouVersion app on your phone, I would encourage you, especially if you're married, but even if you're not, if you're single, um, this is an incredible teaching series. Uh, it's, it's called, it's called, what is it called? It's called Marriage Talks. Um, there are four, basically four sections, and there are five or six um, devotions in each one. Marriage Talks, it's by Through the Word, and you can find it in the Bible app, you version. And this series is not just for those who are, who are married, but for those who are single, those who are divorced, those who are widowed, because regardless of what our relationship status is, if we don't understand relationships from God's perspective, we're going to find ourselves continually being disappointed by our friends and our loved ones. Uh, we, we were created for relationships. We were created in the image of God. We bear his image, and that's super important as we go through this series, because as a part of God's image, we, a part of God's image is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And by nature, God is a relational God. And by being created in his image, we then, by nature, are also relational beings. And, and our guide to all of this is given by God himself is, is the Bible. Um, his word. And in here, we find the definitions that we need for life. We don't have to create new ones because they're already here. They have already been given to us. They are defined, they are described, and they are illustrated in the Word of God. And I want to start this morning with a little biblical marriage math, and you will see that it's pretty simple. The Bible's first marriage story is at the beginning of the Bible itself. And if you would, in your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2, the first part of this message we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. And, and, and before the covenants, before the fall, before redemption was even necessary, when the world was pure and mankind and everything else was good, way back then, God made a man and God made a woman. And he said in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one Flesh And that simple little miracle, that heavenly work of mathematical mystery, one plus one equals one. They were made male and female in God's image, a reflection of his goodness. And together, they were one. And God said it was good. In fact, the whole world was good, and they lived with no shame, we are told, but they did not live happily ever after. As much as we wish they did, and as much as we wish we could, the, the story goes south from there, actually, uh, which for a lot of folks sounds about right for marriage. Um, it started great, then something 
Then something went wrong, or, or maybe it didn't even start great, but still, it felt like there should have been something good, like it was supposed to be great, like there was something there, something pure and something good. Something that was meant to be. It's, it's like picking up a guitar or sitting down at a piano that, that we know was created to make music, magnificent music. If we could just figure out how to play it right, it would be amazing. But something is most definitely out of tune or broken, or, or maybe I'm broken. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> We're all broken. I'm broken. My wife's broken. Our parents are broken. You are broken. The whole system, the world, this life, even marriage, it's all broken by sin and cursed by God. So what do we do with that then? <laughs> right? I mean, broken people in a broken world trying to make good relationships and good marriages? Is that even possible? Well, there are some ingredients that the scripture give us, gives us that make good relationships possible. And, and I'm going to interchange the word relationship and marriage fairly often. Um, I, I noticed in this one, I, I, I lean pretty strongly on marriage, and we all need to understand what the Bible has to say about that. This one here, this point is true for all of us. The first ingredient in, in marriage and relationships is redemption. It is redemption. When we're young... Right? Most of us look at marriage as a way to make us happier. If I just had the right person to spend the rest of my life with, I would be so much happy, so, so happy together. Oh, it's raining outside, didn't notice. Work was hard, didn't notice. Because I'm married and that will just make me happy. But what if marriage, with all of its high hopes and deep frustrations, is something that God uses as a part of our redemption story. And, and even more than that, what if God uses marriage as a picture for the people around us of his redemption story for all of humanity? Wouldn't that be something? Well, it is, and he does. It's pretty amazing, actually. Um, marriage, now, marriage is not God's only plan for our redemption journey. And, and he works differently in every one of our lives. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chap, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, that it is better to stay single. Uh, we, we can serve God better that way, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 and 8. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried. As I do. So if you are single, that is good. It's not bad to be single. Okay, you aren't a lesser person if you are single. Being single is not bad. It's being alone that is not good. God says that in the garden. It was not good for man to be alone. He didn't say single. He said alone. Now, marriage is good too, of course, but, but it is not God's plan for every Christian. Um, nor is it inherently better, happier, or easier. In many ways, again, the Bible says the single life is, is better. Now, redemption is God's act of saving something broken. Okay, rescuing from sin and restoring it to what it was meant to be. 
uh, in the Bible, marriage and redemption are deeply connected. Now, marriage doesn't redeem us from our sin. Jesus does. And, and the Bible says that Jesus did that on the cross and by the power of his resurrection. That's where our eternal redemption comes from. Uh, but our redemption in the process, our sanctification, our, him taking us who are broken and all those things around us that are broken and making them right is a process that he does in our marriages. So I, I wanted to pick a nice happily ever after story from the Bible to use as an illustration today. So I first thought David and Bathsheba, right? Nope, adultery, murder. How about Samson and Delilah? Manipulation, narcissism, not that one. How about Jacob and Rachel, right? He loves her. He works seven years just to win Rachel's hand. It's so sweet. And, and then he's deceived into marrying her sister. So what does he do? He ends up marrying her later, and, and yeah, it's complicated and, and mostly not happy, I don't think. Um, turns out happily ever after is for fairy tales and rom-coms. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love marriage. I'm, I'm married, happily married. Um, but our marriage has to deal with real life. Our marriages are in the midst of brokenness. And we need to remember that. And, and, and the Bible, thankfully, gets real. Happiness and marriage are connected in the Bible. But, but the Bible is very real about it. So let, let's consider the prophet Hosea. If you've ever read the story of, of Hosea, God takes a broken, messed up marriage, wrecked by sin, and he redeems it. I mean, I'll, I'll leave that to you to read all of, of the book, but by the time the book is over and we hear the whole story of, of Hosea, um, two of his children who were not conceived through him, um, and they, their, their names in the beginning of the book are not my people and unloved. Great names for children. By the end, they're renamed my people and loved. It's, it's God's story of redemption, how he redeems us and how he too can redeem marriage. Romans uses that story of Hosea as a picture of us. We're, we're broken and now we're loved. We are his people. If we are followers of Jesus Christ and God tells the redemption story through the picture of a broken marriage made whole. The process isn't easy, but it is beautiful. And, and it is a work of God. Uh, being redeemed by Jesus and walking the journey of life with Jesus, everything that we are a part of has the potential to, to speak redemption, to be an illustration of redemption to other people. Redemption is the first ingredient, and, and what an amazing ingredient it is. I mean, those, those songs that we just sang, the truth in those songs. How deep is the Father's love? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are his redeemed. So number two this morning is, what was God's original design for marriage? Because that kind of seems to be up for grabs these days. 
What was God's original design for marriage? So in in Genesis chapter 2, I'm assuming you stayed there. In the beginning, God created everything and everything was good. And it was good and we know that because God said it was. God created the man out of the dust of the ground. Check your periodic table. It's what we are. He called the man Adam, which means man. And he put him in the garden of Eden to work it. Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. He gave Adam a will. In fact, he gave him a free will, the choice between good and evil, and a command to choose good. But then we arrive at verse 18, and and now this, this is big. It is not good for the man to be alone. It's the first time in all of creation that God says something's not good. And it's not Adam that's not good, it's his condition. Um, He is alone, and aloneness is not good. God looks and says, not good. And I want to repeat, marriage is not the only way to fill in these missing pieces. Um, The Bible commends the single life, but not the alone life. Single is good, alone is not good. And at the end of verse 18, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay, the word helper is clearly the key here. Um, This is God's solution to the problem, and we will see it is the original purpose of a wife. Okay, I looked up the word, the Hebrew word here for helper. Uh, It's not terribly romantic. It's azir, and it literally means, you ready? Helper. (laughs) To help. But, but wait, that sounds something like the bossy brother telling, you know, little sister, I'll play the boss, you play the helper. Is that God's plan for husband and wife? Let's see how this turns out. Look at verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Isn't that interesting? I mean, what is God doing? He had to know that animals were not going to suffice Adam in his loneliness. But he doesn't tell that to Adam. Right? The process, I, I don't, and I don't know how many kinds of animals there were on the planet at that time. Um, it, it could have taken hours for him to, to have all of the animals prayed in front of him and have him to name them, or it could have taken days. I, I don't know. Um, and, and I don't know if God said, hey, we're going to see if we can find you a suitable helper. And so I, you, you choose out of all the animals. I don't know if that conversation happened or not. But what we do know is that God lets Adam learn from the process. Now, Animals are helpful. Horses can plow fields. Dogs can, uh, you know, dogs can chase cows and herd cows, sheep. But that's not the help that Adam needs. That should give us some insight into what a spouse isn't. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. 
And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And I always like to say, you know, when she... When, when Eve stood there before Adam, he went, whoa, man. And that's where woman came from. I, I don't know if that's true or not. But So this is it. Adam was given the right one, a woman, a wife. And watch what Adam says. The wife is far more than a helpful assistant. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What a beautiful piece of poetry. It means she's part of me. She's not some separate, totally disconnected thing from me. She's not a tool or a pet to be owned. And for those who think woman coming from man's body makes man greater and woman lesser, keep in mind that every man since has come from a woman, so to speak. So one up for your mom. Now, the New Testament has more to say about the different roles of husband and wife and and I hope to get there, not necessarily today, but in the next three weeks we will. Adam speaks of his wife with words of equality. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And, and much more than that, of, of oneness. Verse 24, uh, that, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Created male and female. A biblical marriage is a union of one man and one woman. That's the prescription that we're given. There is no other example, illustration, words in all of Scripture that, that tells us anything different. In fact, Paul warns us of being in any other type of union. It's in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and he's talking about all the, the, the bad behavior of mankind, and he says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's unnatural. Outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's very clear. So we must not condone or practice anything other than biblical marriage. Another, biblical, another ingredient of good biblical relationships is unity. Unity is such a small, simple word. <laughs> so difficult to work out in life, right? Um, unity. Marriage is a covenant of unity. A covenant, a relationship, a commitment, and an incredible blessing. Uh, from its very foundation, marriage is Unity. A man leaves his mom and dad and is united. The two become one flesh. So if it's unity, why is the wife called a helper? Does that mean Adam does the big stuff and Eve just helps? I mean, that almost sounds subservient, right? 
uh, but not so fast. Azer, or helper, is found 21 times in the Old Testament. Okay, that word, helper, is found 21 times in the Old Testament, twice here. Another two times to say that something isn't very helpful. But in all of the other 17, the word is used to speak of God. The Lord is my helper. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is used as a name for the Holy Spirit. The helper. Think about that. The word used to describe the role of a wife is a rather ordinary word, helper. And yet, it is a word that God uses to describe his role with mankind many times. God is a helper. Now, I'm not saying that your wife is God. Uh Uh-uh. I'm saying that the role God gave her is a God role. Not a tool, not a pet, not a slave, a helper. Now, read on in the Bible and we will find that our purpose in life is found not in living for self, but but living for others. Correct? Um, We are all called to be helpers. Every one of us. Because God is a helper and we are made in his image. What I'm saying to you men here this morning is that God's help to you often comes in the form of your wife. I'm saying that God's words to you will quite often come through the voice of your wife. Um, God provides a suitable helper, not lesser, not subservient, Someone who is a part of me. Someone who is part of me. As the chapter ends in verse 25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, the point of that verse is not the nakedness. It's the last part, the no shame. Um, No awful sense that I need to cover up or pretend. No facade, just content with who I am and open with my spouse or my friends. This is the life that God intended for us. Today it's broken, and yet God has a plan to redeem, to restore all of us to a place of no shame. And and you just might find that he will use your marriage or relationship as a part of that plan. To make you who he wants you to be. What what does it take to make that unity work then? What what are the ingredients that make you one? Not to make you happy. Again, if we aim for happiness, we will likely find discontentment. But if we aim for wholeness, we'll probably find ourselves happy. As Jesus said in verse uh, 33 of chapter 6 of Matthew, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be given to you as well. That's first priority. Now, some of you might be asking, is this to become one concept really that important? Well, when Jesus is asked a sticky question about marriage and divorce in Mark chapter 10, he takes the same approach. He says in verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. In other words, Jesus, you know, sometimes people like to claim that Jesus never talked about this. Jesus never said anything. Well, what did he say? 
from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. In, in other words, Jesus says, go back to God's original plan. And he quotes the very same verse from Genesis in verse 8 of Mark 10. And the two will become one flesh. And just to drive it home, he says it again, but this time in the present tense. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. One plus one equals one. Jesus wants us to know that God's plan from the beginning is still the present reality. The two are one. Now, he also acknowledges that the hardness of human hearts complicates the situation. But even as Jesus acknowledged the reality of our brokenness, he also reminded us that God's plan from the beginning still stands. And when a man and a woman are married, the two become one. Paul quotes the same verse when he explains the heart of Christian marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, and he quotes it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in reference to sex, when he explains why sexual immorality is so dangerous. Because God designed sex as an essential part of the two becoming one flesh, and we have certainly made a mess of it all with our sinful nature and our hard hearts. And, and we're going to try and tackle some of the trickier topics like sex, adultery, and divorce a little bit later in the series. But this is, we only got three more weeks after, after today. We'll see what we can fit in in this particular series. So, so marriage is all about being one, unity. One plus one equals one. And a major ingredient of that unity is humility. Humility. A friend once, a friend once said to me, David, he said, you will never know how selfish you are until you get married. I chuckled, of course. Man, was he right. He was so right. You know, I think the reason for that is because this other person that you're spending a lot of time with be becomes a mirror into your life. You know, we can go through life. We don't observe all kinds of things about ourselves. I, seriously, I'm terrible at this. Uh, you know, I'll get home from church sometime before I was shaving my head and my wife will say, oh, your hair is terrible. Oh, really? I hadn't noticed. I mean, I don't look into a mirror very often. Um, I just don't. But my wife is a serious mirror into my life. She sees into. Sometimes it's hard to hear those things, right? Sometimes we want to defend ourselves and say, no, I'm not that way. usually indefensible um, my she's not here today so I can't I can't read her face to whether I'm infringing too much or not but for the most part I would have to agree that 95% of the time my wife my wife's intent uh, 95 might be a little high is because she loves me and she wants me to be a better person. She wants me to spend the time that I need to with my kids. All of those times where, where she would confront me with something that, that I was just kind of getting wayward with in my life or there's, there's something like, you know, she's, she, 
you know, you've been kicked under a table if you're married before. Um, that just happened a couple weeks ago. And she was right. I needed to shut my mouth. Um, but see, we have to be humble in order to hear those things. We have to humble ourselves before this person, be- before God. Um, as humans, you know, we're always looking for solutions to problems. And I think when you're single, marriage can look like a really good solution. And, and I want to caution you here. Because uh, that's not real. <laughs> um, the Bible doesn't pretend in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 28, Paul says, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. It's true. It's hard. It's hard. Um, I'd like to see that on a wedding card, right? But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. I bet Hallmark wouldn't sell a lot of those. Now, don't misunderstand. Though, though marriage does not mean less troubles in life, it does mean that when we do have troubles in life, other troubles in life, we have someone to walk with us through those troubles. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one because they have a, reg- a good return for their labor. But those two have to be pulling the same direction. In marriage and other relationships, for that matter, we work together. We fight the world out there, not in here. And all too often, it's, it's, it's me fighting you. It's my flesh against your flesh, when in reality, it should be our flesh against the dark forces and the principalities of this dark world. Because I'm telling you, that dark world is doing whatever it can to influence you to hate the person that you committed your life to. No, we fight the world out there from inside the same foxhole. We are fighting together, not with each other. I mean, we're fighting with each other arm in arm, not with each other, pointing our guns. How, how good is that for the military or for, for a commander to have his guys inside a foxhole pointing their guns at each other? The enemy will easily take over. Easily if they're not fighting for the same thing. So now, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4, there is a powerful call to unity in the church, and it starts out, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's, That's within the church. That applies to marriage. That applies to the relationship that you have with your best friends at school, with the, the people that you don't like at school. It, it applies to, to all of our relationships. Ephesians 4, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, and keep your, your Bible at, in Ephesians. Philippians 2 will be up here on the screen, is all about unity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Man, that's where it is really hard in marriage to, because, I mean, that other person, they're not perfect. They do stuff. They do wrong stuff. They say wrong stuff. That doesn't change that verse. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Too often, we convince ourselves that what we're doing, what we're spending our time doing is the most important. And though that person needs help on the side of the road, I don't have time to do that because I got to get to this thing. Or, 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 you know, it would take me five minutes. It would take me five minutes to rinse the dishes that are in the sink and put them in the dishwasher and wipe the sink down. Husbands, that is a great thing to do. You know, Gramps Baker, Gramps Baker used to, seriously, he, I think he gave everybody who got married in this church a bottle of, every husband, every new husband that got married in this church, a bottle of Dawn dishwashing soap when they got married. (laughs) And I don't know how many times I was at their house. Every time he was the one doing the dishes. Every time. Now, there may be women in here who love to do dishes, and you know what? I didn't marry one of those. (laughs) And I don't like it either, so it's a a stretch. But but honestly, I've kind of timed it. It it doesn't take very long. Sometimes sometimes Sarah will say, you want to clean the bathroom or do the dishes? (laughs) I hate cleaning the bathroom worse than I hate doing the dishes, so... She doesn't really even need to ask. She just needs to say, you do the dishes, I'll clean the bathroom, you know, or that, that sort of thing. Guys, don't, don't miss how radical this verse is. Consider others more important than yourselves. We got to take our minds off of ourselves. I mean, who does that, right? Well, if we obey God, we do. And you know who else? Jesus does. That's what Jesus did. Um, Paul says that in our relationships, we should have the same mindset as Jesus Others above self. Humility. And another ingredient is wisdom. Marriage requires wisdom combined with humility. Wisdom. In John 13, there's an account of Jesus' love and a crucial lesson for his disciples. Stay in Ephesians chapter 4. Don't leave there. When Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment to love one another as he loved them, it was just after he humbled himself and washed their feet. He served them. Humble acts of serving one another are an expression of love and a key ingredient to a strong marriage. When wisdom is humble, it it lets go of pride so that arguments can be resolved. And when love is humble, it serves the other so that the two can grow together as one. Now, one of the very first challenges that comes up with individuals is decision-making. How are we going to make decisions? Okay, who, who makes the call? Who takes the lead? Do you take turns? Okay, you, you make this decision, I'll make the next one. You know, there was a, there was a husband, he'd been married for 65 years, and, and this guy was asking him, how, how on earth have, has your marriage lasted for 65 years? And he said, well, he said, let me tell you. He said, I make all the big decisions. And the guy's like, Really? Wow, how how did that work? He's like, you know what? After 65 years, not one big decision. That's not how it works. So do we take turns? Do we put the man in charge because men are smarter and stronger? I'm kidding, of course. That's messed up. Um, But some people think the Bible says that. 
I'm as if God made men better so men do all the cool stuff and women, well, women can just help. But let me be clear here. That's wrong. That is wrong. Um, it is not biblical, but the Bible does give husband and wife different roles. So another ingredient to a good marriage is a role model. Okay, marriage needs a role model. Relationships need good roles and good role models. Every good team needs good roles. A team without clear roles is a team in chaos. I mean, even if there are clear roles and, and you've got two or three guys that actually want to be the quarterback... And two of them aren't willing to sacrifice and let the guy that, that has been given that role to do his job, it creates problems. You know, if you've got a running back who thinks he knows more than the coach and the coach sends in the play and he says, now nah, we're not going to run that play, we're going to run this one. It creates chaos. Teams fight when that happens a lot. We need roles and role models. It, it helps a lot to have a healthy Christian marriage among your friends who you can observe. All too often what we do is we find people who only agree with our side, not the people who will really actually tell us the truth in the situation. Oh yeah, well, well yeah, certainly you need to walk away because obviously, and this person is a, you know, a divorced, whatever, they haven't had any success in marriage. No, that's, those aren't the people that we need to align ourselves with. We need to have good role models. The, the Bible presents a clear equality between men and women, both male and female, are created in God's image. That's key. Okay, and, and Peter reminds Christian husbands to honor their wife as a co-heir in God's kingdom, 1 Peter 3, 7. Jesus paid the same price for each of us. And we are both children of the king. That's equality. And yet the Bible also gives us different roles. And when those roles are misunderstood, we get misogyny. But understood correctly, we get unity. So what are the biblical roles of Christian marriage? Well, there comes a time when a man must decide what sort of husband he will be. So let's just say in the middle of the night, the dog barfs in the middle of the bed. Who's going to clean it up? You're both there. You both are awake. Who's going to clean it up? Who cleans up the dog barf? Do I tell my wife that cleaning is woman's work? And that I need to get more rest because I got some important things I need to do tomorrow? Do I quote Ephesians chapter 5? Wife, submit to your husband? See, the heart of the question is, whose job is it, biblically speaking, to clean up dog barf? Is it husband or wife? For that, we need job descriptions. And that brings us to Ephesians chapter 5. So... Flip over one chapter to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I want to warn you, people get this wrong by, re by reading select parts of the Bible. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife. Perfect, right? Did I read that right? Yes. It's in the Bible, right? Yes, it is right there. Here's the problem. If you stop there... 
You will live a messed up marriage because here's what that sounds like. Husbands, you're in charge as leader. You make the decisions. You are the captain, quarterback, superstar, general, president, and every other worldly image of masculine leadership, which means you do the important stuff. Wife, you are subservient. You do the menial stuff so he can do the cool stuff. You see, that's wrong. It's very wrong. Why do we get it wrong? We get it wrong because we focus on the roles, but we miss the role models. Have you ever tried to follow written instructions and you messed everything up, but then you're finally like, okay, I'm going to get on YouTube. I don't know how many times I've pulled something apart on a car and broke something trying to get it apart and then watch the video and go, oh man, why didn't I do that first? It's the same thing. I just see somebody else do it, and it makes it so much easier. That's a role model, but copy the wrong model, and you get it just as wrong as they do. So I, I've been watching a few things here lately, and it's like, how do I know that the, 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 the five things you have to do with your RV. How do I know this guy really knows these are the five things? What if he's wrong on some of them? And how do I know if he is or not? How do, I just watched one of these this morning. Um, the best way to sharpen the blades on your lawnmower. How do I know that's really the best? Maybe that guy's been doing it wrong his whole life too. Here in Ephesians 5, when we read wives submit and husbands lead, then look to the world for a model, we ruin it. But read carefully. The passage uses the word submit four times. Two for wives and twice for all Christians. It uses the word love seven times. Those are important, but we find the church referenced ten times and Jesus eleven. The focus of this passage on marriage is the relationship between Jesus and the church. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Notice it says nothing about quarterbacks, CEOs, or captains. We mess this up when we apply a worldly model to a godly directive. In the world, the boss does the cool stuff. He gets better pay, more important work, and all the perks. Leave the menial stuff to the, to the slaves and the workers, to the servants. But that's not how Jesus works. Think about it. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He washed dirty feet, cared for children, helped the hurting. Yes, he did miracles too, but he also told his disciples in John 14, 12, you will do even greater works than these. That is how Jesus treats the church. So husbands, if you ever wonder, should you let your wife do the cool work, ask yourself, would Jesus, what would Jesus let the church do? Heal the sick, reach the lost, turn the world upside down. Jesus wants his church to shine. He makes her shine. And he takes the menial work, he washes their feet, and that is the role model for our marriage. When we get Christian marriage wrong, when we apply a worldly model, it, it not only messes up our marriages, it messes up our view of God. This, this is important. Your relationship with your spouse affects your relationship with God and vice versa, actually. 
It affects your kids' relationship with God. If they see dad treat mom like a lowly servant, because that's what worldly leaders do, then their picture of following Jesus is going to be bad. But when dad lays his life down for mom, your kids get a front row seat to to the love of Christ. Okay, two final necessary ingredients for good relationships are sacrifice and submission. Relationships require sacrifice and submission. In the Old Testament, where are sacrifices made? Where do do they make sacrifices? On the altar. Where do we get married? At an altar. Right? Couples stand at a wedding ceremony at what we call the wedding altar. Think about it. Marriage begins at a place of sacrifice. And we literally look at each other and say, I'm sacrificing everything to you. Everything. And then we repeat this vow where we say, for better or worse. And some of you, I know, you're in worse. Some of you are in better. But you vowed, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, until what? Until one of us takes our last breath. We sacrifice. Because one plus one doesn't equal one without sacrifice and submission. No way. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This verse is the opening to that whole passage. It's a call for every follower of Jesus Christ, men and women, to submit to one another because we respect Jesus. Now, first, let me clarify something. Submission is not subjugation. Okay, subjugation is forced submission and it is absolutely unchristian. Men and women, if you are in Christ, you are sons and daughters of the king. His will for you, declared in verse after verse, is freedom. It's dignity, it's honor, it's respect. And yet, voluntary submission to others is a crucial part of that life of freedom. For a Christian, every human relationship requires some level of submitting to others, right? Of compromise, giving in, putting the other first, or letting them take the lead. Submission is a necessary ingredient for one plus one equals one. But take note, submission should not be enforced, but offered. Submission here is a dignified act of free will taken by a child of the king. And an act of respect between equals. Submission is an expression of humility, honor, and love. And and watch carefully here. In Christian marriage, both husband and wife are called to give something up. To let go for the sake of the other. But what they give up is a little different on each side. A couple, a married couple is one, one united body. And in that one body, verse 23 tells us that the husband is the head. That's key, but don't misread it. Head is, does not mean overlord. Um, head and body are not master and slave. They are one. Um, There's no competition. There's no me better than you between your head and your body. The head doesn't boss the body around for personal gain. 
The head cares for the body. They work together. And they communicate, protect, sacrifice, and care for each other for the good of the whole. They are one. And when husband and wife are truly one, they give us a picture of Jesus and the church. Jesus is the head. The church is his body. And so verse 22 of Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now this submission is, is, a, it is a sacrifice. It means allowing your husband to lead. It means laying down your God-given ability and right to lead and direct your own life and follow his lead. The word as here means as part of. Submit to your husband as part of your submission to Christ. But notice a couple things that it does not say. It does not say, husband, make your wife submit. That is neither love nor humility, and it is not the way Jesus treats us. It doesn't say that men are smarter than women, or better leaders, or more valuable. It also does not say all women submit to all men. Nor does it say all men are head over all women. This passage is for Christian marriage. That's it. Not society, not politics, not the workplace. Nothing here says that a woman cannot be a CEO or a president. Then verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So submitting to a husband should be like submitting to Christ. And, and following Jesus means doing some pretty amazing things together. <laughs> to follow Jesus is to do work that matters, to live with purpose, talents, and calling. But it is still submission. It is still surrender. Now, the reason that submitting to Jesus is such an awesome experience is that Jesus is a fantastic leader. Husbands, you got to hear this. Jesus is a selfless leader. Jesus leads us by putting us first. He serves us. He washes dirty feet. I bet he washed some dishes. His, his compassion, he had compassion when, when we're hurting. He helps us, he encourages us, he equips us to do amazing things, sacrifices all his good for the sake of others. And that is exactly the way that the husband is called to treat his wife. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus sacrificed everything for us. Husband, and you got to do the same. That is how you show love. Marriage and relationships are a part of God's act of redemption. And we are all in process. We are all at a different place on this continuum that is redemption in regards to our marriages and our relationships. I get that. Some married, some will be someday, some single. The most important piece of all of this is that our relationship is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus truly is enough. You know, trust me, I, I get it. You're single, you want to be married, and you hear a pastor say, Jesus is enough. You're like, yeah, whatever, you roll your eyes. It's really true. And if I had learned that when I was single, 
and trying to knock the door of matrimony down with the biggest thing I could find, oh, my life would have been so much more peaceful early on. Jesus is our role model. God designed our roles, roles that, sub, that, that contribute to equality and unity in relationships, humility, wisdom, sacrifice, submission. Just as Christ gave himself up for the church, we are to consider others more important than ourselves and serve, to lay down our lives, all of our selfish ambition, our self-centered desires and greeds. We got to let those die. And when we allow people who are actually part of the world give us wisdom and, and advice how we should engage in a biblical Christian marriage, that's the wrong place to go. They might be telling us what we want to hear, but they're not telling us what's best for us. This is our redemption story. Jesus laid down his life so that we could have new life, forgiven, redeemed, restored. And that redemption story applies to our marriages and our relationships too. It's the model for our marriage. We're all broken, dead in our sin, but Jesus submitted to the Father sacrificed himself that saved us that saved us now it's our turn to live like christ and as the husband sacrifices and the wife submits there is restoration to god's original design and the two can live as one let's pray as the worship team comes up father thank you that you have redeemed us and god as we sing this this final song and we proclaim your greatness and and your saving us. I pray that in our marriages and in our relationships, wherever we are in this, God, help us. Help us to go vertical and to seek you first and let you take care of us, to let you help us. And then as, as we experience your forgiveness and your redemption, we then begin to flow that out of our lives into the lives of others. Maybe that's a spouse. Maybe that's a a child. Maybe that's a parent, a friend, a, a boss. May you be glorified in our lives and may other people be redeemed because of the redemption that they see in our life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing this.